Good morning, village. It's good to see everyone this morning and fellowshipping and um, just being God's family, God's church. It's a wonderful thing. Um, we are, my family was a little nervous coming today because um, we, we thought we were going to be given some guest cards and asked to fill them out. And there's new people here. We haven't been here in a few weeks. And so we've missed you all with the missions trip and the church camping trip and sickness. But it's good to be back and good to be jumping into Acts 20. Um, as we get to this next section of Acts, it gets a little more serious. It gets a little more somber from here on out as we follow the end of, of Paul's ministry. And, and so I, I've been thinking a lot about this text in particular because it's Paul saying goodbye to the church, specifically to the church at Ephesus, but in a larger sense to all of these churches he's founded. And how many of you like goodbyes? Usually I have half and half. Yeah, no, depends on who it is. No, just don't go there. Let's just not go there. Goodbyes are hard. Goodbyes are challenging because we don't like it. I, I think of many of you have either moved away from family or had family move away from you in the last couple of years. And that's hard. And you know you'll see them again, but there's challenges there. Um, even something like leaving a job or leaving work is goodbyes that can be hard for the most part, unless you really hate your job. Uh, you know, but, but goodbyes are hard. Um, you know, sometimes we try to make lighter of them with little sayings, see you later, alligator, you know, sort of fun after a while. And then ones you probably don't know, see you soon, baboon, very good. You guys are very educated. Um, out the door, dinosaur, good. <laughs> nice, okay. Um, this, this one's for my wife, hit the road, hoppy toad. (laughs) And and so we, we try to lighten up the, the, the emotion of saying goodbye. It's hard. Charlie Brown, the great theologian said, goodbye always makes my throat hurt. And and I'm like, yeah, it, 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 it does. And many of us have had goodbyes recently and, and, as, as I was thinking that, that sets up what's happening here because Paul is convinced that he is seeing this group, and we'll get into that a little more next week. We're going to take two weeks on this text this week. Paul is convinced he's seen this group of men and women for the last time. He even says, this is it. This is the last time you'll see my face. And this is a group of, of believers that he was with at Ephesus for three, three and a half years. And so his heart was tied to them. He had ministered with them. And we're going to look at his example of ministry today. And then next week we'll look at his commitment to ministry and his instructions for the, the church to continue. But think, if you were saying goodbye to your kids and, and you were trying to pass on truth to your kids, you'd have a lot of things to say, Right? And it might go beyond turn off the ceiling fan when you leave the room. It probably will have deeper things like this is how you walk with God. This is how you stay true to God. God is faithful. And and if you were moving away, you would want to pass those on to your kids. And that is the situation that we come to in Acts chapter 20. So turn with me to Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 38. Acts chapter 20, verses... Actually, we're just going to get to verse 21 today. So 17 to 21. Um, And we're going to, to jump into how Paul says goodbye... Because in doing that, we get to see what he passes on. So our title this morning is A Good But Hard Goodbye, Passing on Ministry Well. 
And we're in Acts chapter 20. Like I said, we'll be taking just the first chunk today, um, 17 through 21. So let me read those, and then we'll break it down. If if you've looked at your notes, you already know that we're breaking it down into eight different things. And we're just going to hit these because Paul is, we see in his example, eight quick things about his leadership, about ministering to others, about being servants that we want to learn. But Acts 20, starting at verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In those four or five quick verses, we see a whole lot of truth, a whole lot of things about Paul's example. And and before we jump in, I, I, I want to preface today by saying this isn't just for you if you're an elder. The rest of you can't just fall asleep in the, the balcony window <laughs> Sorry, last week's text. Um, and, and, and be okay today. This is Paul passing on how to be a minister for Christ. How many of us are called to be ministers for Christ? Every one of us. And so these are ways that all of us, things that all of us should learn, his example that all of us should follow. And at, at the end, I want to bring us back to they not only apply to ministry in the church, but because these are godly principles, godly example. They apply to how we lead our homes. They apply to how we lead our marriages, how we uh, disciple our children, how we at work be servants of God and use work for the glory of God. They apply to every aspect of our life. But as we look through them, I want us to be challenged by them too. Not just say, yay, Paul. Paul's awesome. We love Paul. We've learned a lot about Paul today. But to say, what does God want me to learn? How does he want me to change? And so in this this first section of verses, as Paul says a final goodbye, this is our summary, it's at the top of your notes. As Paul says a final goodbye, he passes on his ministry example, ministry commitment, and leadership instructions, equipping the church to continue the work of Jesus. Not continue the work of Paul, continue the work of Jesus. Because Paul's continuing the work of Jesus. And today we'll look at that first part of that, his ministry example. So in verse 17, we started, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now you remember last week, as you were either camping or here, we covered the same text. Paul had left Ephesus after three years, and he had gone up through Macedonia and down into to Corinth, spent three months in Corinth, especially after some real difficult letters there and addressing some things there. And then he was coming back here. And so last week, we get um, fun with maps working here. Last week, he left Ephesus, took the overland route, came up through Macedonia and visited the churches in Macedonia and came down to Corinth. Spent some time there. And during this time is when we we believe he wrote Romans and um, he wrote some of the letters to the Corinthians here. So he comes in now... At the end of last week, he was coming back through here, and he had skipped Ephesus, right? Had gone to Miletus, 
because Ephesus, he's trying to get to Jerusalem in a certain amount of time, and sometimes goodbyes are long, and he'd have to say goodbye to everyone in town, and so he skips it, comes to Miletus, which is just right below Ephesus, but he still wants to say goodbye to the leaders of the church there and give them instructions, so he asks them to come over, and they come to hear what Paul has to say, to say goodbye, and to listen to his farewell address. And, and like I said, this isn't just to them, but to all the churches and to all the churches of all time. And so to us today. And so then he says, and when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And the first thing we see of Paul's example is consistent transparency. Consistent Transparency. And transparency is one of those buzzwords that we, we throw out today. Everyone wants to be transparent and, and reveal themselves and to be heard and to be seen and, and all this stuff. But this, what, what Paul is meaning here is from day one, I opened up my life and lived it with you. I lived it in front of you that you could see how I walk with God. You could see how I pray. You could see how I study the word, how I teach the word. But also, when you live in this kind of transparency, you can see the sins I struggle with. You can see that I blow it sometimes and have to go back and repent and ask for forgiveness. And so the the first example here is Paul is, he lives a life of transparency. And from first day until now, that's the consistency. He's been the same the whole time. They've seen his character. They've seen his actions. He uses the words, you yourselves know, which means basically you've seen it. You've seen it. And so follow that example. And so in his goodbye, he doesn't appeal to his ministry first. He doesn't appeal to what he says first. He appeals to his life first. And that that blows me away. It's like, wow, how can he do that? But Paul was a man of God. And his, his whole goal was the gospel. His whole goal was to build the church and love the church. And so he was real with them. But the only way that that's helpful is if you're real with God and if you're walking with God. And he was a man that was walking with God. And so his example was meaningful. This is how Paul did ministry, right? So, so on, on a lot of these, we can think of the alternative. Think of someone that tries to minister and tries to help you that isn't transparent that has a hidden life, that you don't see who they really are, you just see what they say, is that nearly as effective? No, in fact, I would argue it destroys the message, especially when you find out things that aren't consistent. But Paul chose to live with people, live among people, to be real, to be relational, to be down to earth, and to teach that way. So yes, Paul taught. And we're going to see he taught in, in groups, he taught in the houses, but he also taught just by making leather goods next to somebody. He taught by how he worked. And, and that is so true. How we experience life is how we often teach. Parents, your kids are catching things every day. They aren't just catching what you cover in family worship time. They're catching what happens when the guy cuts you off on, on, on Chapman. They're catching what happens when news that is devastating comes in and where you go to for hope. 
They're catching all that. They're seeing all that. In fact, that stuff of real life is the more important stuff of how we lead. It's vital to lead well in that way. On each of these, I have other verses that show examples of Paul's ministries. In this case, 1 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 10. And I'll read these. They're in your notes so you can go back and read and study them more. But in 1 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 10, as he's talking to that church, one of the churches of Macedonia, by the way, he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, the intellectual, the truth, but also our own selves to open up our lives to you because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. And so this was how, just how Paul ministered, not just to Ephesus, to Thessalonica, but this is what he was like. He opened his life and let people see. You know, sometimes I, I hear words like, well, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm in leadership. I don't like the glass house, and I'm actually a pretty private person, so I'm just going to close off part of my life to people. And we're closing off the power of ministry. We're closing off how God wants us to minister. And in almost every case, as we've sadly seen in the news, we probably are hiding something. An area that we don't want people to see because we really don't want God to see. And so transparency is so important and so vital in in ministry. The other thing about transparency in ministry is it protects, doesn't it? It protects from false attacks. There's going to be accusations. There's going to be false attacks. But when you've lived with someone for years and they know you and they know your character, they're like, well, that's not Phil. or, Or that's not Terry. Or whatever it is. And so it protects from false attacks if we open ourselves up and are transparent. Now, I I know an example like that can be devastatingly scary for introverts. I get it. But this is just opening and living normal life with people, including some into your circles. And that's what Paul did. That's how he ministered. And so the first example we have is consistent transparency. The next one starts with the, the first three words of verse 19. And we're just going to take little, little chunks of words here. Serving the Lord with all humility. With all humility will be the next one. But serving the Lord, the, the next thing he says is his identity is a servant. He is a servant of God. And so he's lived transparently and then this is who he is. He is a servant of the Lord. He is serving the Lord. And, and what that literally means there is to be a servant of a master, to serve a master, to be responsive to a master's commands at all times. It uses the same word that we use for, um, for bondservant, um, the verb form of it. And so Paul is saying, I am God's bondservant. This is who I am. Now, now think about this. Think about what it means to be a servant. What claims does the servant have on the master? Nothing, right? The servant can't go to the master and say, you know what? I really don't like the way you're running the household, but I have a 10-point plan for you. 
And I, I actually already went ahead and implemented it, even though you don't want this. What happens to that servant? He's fired. We get a quick goodbye. Um, and, and not saying that if we do that to God, he dismisses us. But Paul is saying he is a servant. He is coming under the master. The master is everything. He exists to do the master's will. Not to tell the master what to do, not to get up at the master, not to get mad at the master, but to do the master's will. A servant doesn't get the fame. A servant doesn't get the glory. A servant doesn't get the power. A servant doesn't make demands. A servant serves. And Paul's example, even though he is what we would consider a great man of the faith, the the founder of the church as it spread to Asia Minor and to the rest of the world, and we, we can elevate Paul, and Paul's consistent description of himself, I'm just a servant. I'm just a servant of the Most High. In Romans 12.1, and, and many of the books he writes, he starts with that. But Romans 12.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And for Paul, leadership and influence of people and the way he did ministry wasn't about lifting himself up, wasn't about following his own way, but it was about following Jesus. How do I bring people to Jesus? How do I point people to him? It wasn't about his rights. It's about the master's task. And so in verse 19, he says his identity is a servant. And the very next thing he goes into is the key ingredient to servanthood. And that's humility, serving the Lord with all humility. So Paul exhibited transparency. He exhibited servanthood. He was always there to serve others, not be about himself. And then he did this with humility, which refers to the inward attitude in which he served. See, if anyone, Paul had reason for pride, right? And he says that in one of his other books. He says, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He has, he has single-handedly helped spread the church to a whole new region. Except in his humility, it wasn't single-handedly. It was always with a team and always lifting others up and always sharing the glory and sharing the credit. And, and so Paul, yeah, he could have said, yeah, I started the church. Yeah, the church spread because of me. That's me. But no, he always gave credit back to God. He was a humble man. And sometimes I think we can get the wrong caricature of Paul as this bold, brash, in-your-face guy. And I just don't see it. I see a humble guy who, who was bold when he had to be with the truth, but was always caring and sympathetic and, and humble. The word for humility here is, is the idea of esteeming of ourselves small. Inasmuch as we are, and this is, the, this is the other part of that description, inasmuch as we are so. So it's a correct estimate of ourselves. So it doesn't mean, oh, I'm trash. I, I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm nothing. God messed up when he made me. That's not, that's not humility. That's actually a form of pride. Humility is understanding my smallness in light of God's greatness, understanding the truth as things are. When I start to dwell on how majestic my God is, when I start to dwell that he is holy, I can't help but fall down, right? I can't help but think of myself in a realistic way. 
I am not God. You are not God. Praise God. And humility begins to understand that. Another aspect of this word for humility there that I really liked, one of the the Bible dictionaries, a recognition of our unworthiness to receive God's grace. And this is humility in the context of salvation, but a recognition of our unworthiness to receive God's grace. Grace, by its definition, is unmerited favor, something we don't deserve. And when we begin to realize, I don't deserve salvation. I didn't deserve Jesus to come and die on the cross for my sins. And then to be raised three days later. I didn't deserve that forgiveness, but by God's grace and by his mercy, he freely pours it out on me more than I could ever need and and just, just saturates my entire being with his grace and forgiveness. Then that grace means something. If I come to that and say, yeah, I'm a catch for God. And he really had to show his grace to me because, because I'm a catch. Don't we miss the power of his grace then? It's not, we, we actually have redefined it now to something we earned. And so Paul came to ministry with humility. How this works itself out in ministry is it, it, it leads to a selfless humility. In Philippians 2, 3, and 4, it means putting others above yourself, considering their opinions above your own, considering their needs above your own. And so it's, it's consciously placing others above myself and everything they would want, need, and, and, and be part of. It's intentionally making that part of my thought process How can I be humble and selflessly help others? And so, so far, we have three parts of Paul's example. We have a transparency. He was consistent the whole time. This is who he was. He was a servant. He existed at the pleasure of the master and to serve the master. Didn't need anything for himself. Didn't claim his own rights. And he he did this in a humble fashion knowing that he didn't deserve God's grace, but by grace he received it. And that allowed him to put others before himself and care about others' needs above his own and truly be be sensitive to others and reaching and ministering to others. And then we get the next three words of verse 19. We're getting through it. And and the, the, the fourth characteristic there is care care. Even in tears, Paul was relationally invested, even if it hurt. So he says, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. And the tears and the trials are probably two different things. The trials are probably what he went through with the Jews, what he had just gone through um, on on his last trip, being being, um, finding out there's a plot against his life and having to, to leave. But the tears here, and we see this in other writings of Paul, ministry sometimes is costly. Ministry sometimes hurt if we do it right. Now, we can do a detached ministry where we never involve our hearts and we never care and and the prayer request and the needs never affect us, but that's not ministry from God. That's ministry from self. 
self-protection. But Paul here says he served to the point of tears, tears in ministry. And this can come from different things. One of the places tears in ministry comes from is just a concern and care for people in ministry. We love each other. We talk about village as a family, village as a family. And and as, as we hear things, this week has been a week with a lot of tears. As we hear about medical diagnoses, as we hear about loss of loved ones, as we hear about loss of jobs, as we hear about some of the trials from this fallen Genesis 3 world, breaks our hearts for each other. And so our heart aches. My heart aches for you guys. My heart aches for our family. Your heart aches for our family. And so... To do ministry well, following Paul's example, we have to care. We have to love. And that love is going to cause some tears. And that's okay, because we weep with those who weep. And we rejoice with those who rejoice. Tears also come from willing to be hurt. Hurting people hurt people. You've heard that before, but it is very true. And as we are a church that we want to be more of a hospital than anything else or, or uh, where, where people, hurting people can come and find Jesus and be healed and then a battleship where we send them out to, to spiritual warfare. But in that process, hurting people hurt people. And ministry often has tears because of a word that is not spoken well or a word that is intentional and intentionally hurtful. And Paul got criticism sometimes. And Paul felt the weight of those. But the alternative is to keep people at a distance, to don't get involved, to don't care. Just do your job and you'll be fine. And I would argue that's not following God's example of ministry. It's not following Paul's example of ministry and it doesn't work. I've, I've said this before. I can remember early on in ministry training the, um, you know, 40 years ago, the attitude of ministry was don't have friends in your church. Don't get involved in that way because you'll be hurt. Yeah. Friendships hurt sometimes. Anyone ever hurt in your family? Does, does family ever have iron that sharpens iron? Is there ever words that you're like, man, I shouldn't have said that? Family? Families go through that. And if we're to effectively minister, we've got to be willing to hurt. You know, if you're working with Awana, you've got to be willing to get to know the other Awana workers and the kids you're working with. If you're teaching a youth or adult class, you have to be willing to get involved in your students' lives. Let them get involved in yours, even if it hurts, even if they don't understand. We've got to remember that care is part of ministry. And so Paul showed a passion at times. He showed compassion. He showed empathy. He showed warmth. He showed care. But it also ached in his heart. Romans 9.2, as he's talking to, the, to um, the church, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And he's aching at this point. He's talking about the Jewish people that don't know Christ. And he aches for his own people. That's part of the tears of his ministry. 
In 2 Corinthians 2.4, the church that he had just visited in Corinth, and they're just restoring some things there because he had, he had um, said some hard things, some hard truths, some church discipline. And in 2 Corinthians 2.4, he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That was written after confronting sin. Moms and dads, have you ever cried over your kids? Have you ever watched a child that has walked away from the faith for a while and the tears and the anguish? That's what Paul is feeling here toward the church at Corinth. But is the answer to not love your kids? No, the answer is to continue loving them, continue speaking truth, continue training them and discipling them but to be involved. Philippians 3.18, Paul writes to the church of Philippi, a church he was close to, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he's speaking of people that professed believers, they're professed believers, they said they were Christians, and now they're walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. I've seen that. I can tell you firsthand that happens all the time in ministry people that we invest in and people that we minister to that then turn away from Christ. And we're like, what happened? But even through the tears, Paul is still serving. And so he's given us examples of transparency, of an attitude that sees himself as a servant, of humility, of care for the people that he's leading and the people around him. And then we get to the end of verse 19. We see an example of endurance. Endurance. It says, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. Paul, Paul knows a bit about trials, doesn't he? he? He went through it. He was constantly being pursued by the Jews. He was constantly being beaten, stoned, or run out of town. The persecutions. In 2 Corinthians 11, again to the church at Corinth, he wrote this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. What a list, right? It's like, yeah, that's, that's my summer. No, the, <laughs> I, I don't know how Paul writes that. But you know what? Paul still ministered. He didn't give up. He still loved. He still continued on. And so many times things can happen that make us want to quit ministry and make us want to quit serving in some way or, or, or just quit in general. And the example of Paul is he continued, even with trials at the hand of the Jews. And it's significant that he's talking about the plots of the Jews because Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Jew. These were his own people. This was his crew. And they were the ones attacking and trying to kill him. That's not easy. Just in last week's passage, Acts 20, verse 3, if you look up in the chapter, 
there is talks about Corinth. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he's still serving. I am convinced that Satan will use these things to try to stop God's work. That's, that's probably the obvious statement of the day. Of course he does. But do we realize how intentional he does? These trials and difficulties are how Satan was trying to stop the work of Paul. Trying to stop the work of the church. And, and even this week, and, and just coming to, to where we're at at Village, and coming to some of the trials in the last two weeks that we've heard, in the last few years that we've heard, and just watching the trials that are, are as, as I put them together, seemingly to target most of the ministries of Village. People in most of the ministries of Village. Many of you have gone through it in the last months. And not only does, does my heart break for you, but we have to take this and take Paul's example and see that God was still at work in the storm. God still built his church and the gates of hell did not prevail against it. God still used Paul in mighty ways. And so we see this example of endurance. We see this commitment. We see Paul giving those trials to God and then God turning them and using them for the kingdom in ways that just blows Satan's mind sometimes, I think. I want to be a church where Satan becomes almost afraid to put us on trial because he knows God's going to turn it and use it for the kingdom. And so one of the things we're going to do in January, because I know November and December are just swamped. I, I hear there's like Thanksgiving and Christmas or some holidays. In January, we're going to take a chunk of time. We're going to take 24 hours and have 24 hours of prayer. How do we fight these kind of battles? How do we fight these kinds of trials? We fight them on our knees. And we fight them by going to our God who is majestic and holy and above us. And we leave it with him. So we're going to take 24 hours and people can come and go. And we're going to try to fill every time there where someone is always praying. And we're going to mix it in with some worship. And as a church, we're going to say, okay, do your best, Satan. Because our God is greater. And our God is mighty. And our God knows the trials and he understands them and he went through them. And he is going to turn them and use them for the kingdom. And so we want to model that as a church and say, yeah, there's a lot of just just stuff happening in this fallen world that hurts incredibly deeply. So how do we deal with that? We go to our Lord in prayer first. And so I encourage you, when that comes up in January, sign up for time slots. Let's fill every 24 hours. And let's see what happens when God's church prays. Because I know it's going to be awesome if we come to him in prayer. And so we see Paul's endurance here. The next example, the sixth example we see of Paul's ministry is a loving truthfulness. Loving truthfulness. He spoke helpful truth even when it was hard. Verse 20, you know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And the the idea of did not shrink is the idea of holding back because you fear something. You ever held back something from doing something or saying something because you're afraid? Yeah. Like if I was to go skydiving, I'd get to the end and say, nope. This plane's doing just fine. 
And that fear would, keep, would make me shrink back from that door, wisely so, I would argue, and, and not jump out of a perfectly good airplane. In this case, Paul is saying, I didn't shrink from saying what needed to be said. I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, from teaching you. I didn't hold back on the tough conversations. And the implication here is that Paul had to overcome fear to do that. He didn't take joy in that. Those conversations are hard. To confront sin is hard. But what does that say about a relationship if we don't confront sin? When we allow someone to continue down that path that we know is leading to destruction because our sin, when we don't give it to Jesus, when we haven't come to Jesus for forgiveness, our sin leads to eternal destruction. Even for believers, it leads to a loss of relationship with God. And so if we truly care and if we truly love someone, we will have those hard conversations. We might say, well, what if they attack back? What if they say things that, that hurt? They, they will in many situations. What if relationship is lost? It might be for a time. We have to trust the Holy Spirit with those questions. What if they don't like it? I haven't met someone yet that likes being confronted on sin. Maybe that's you and, and praise God. It's hard. It does often turn on you. I don't want to like paint it as rainbows. But it's the right thing to do. And Paul, his ministry consistently He found the courage to do that because it was the right thing to do. Galatians 4.16, talking to the church at Galatia, and he had some hard things to say to that church about the law and, and adding to salvation. He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And so he doesn't avoid the unpopular subjects. This is one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible. It's harder to avoid an, a, a difficult topic if you're just taking the next topic in the book. And we don't skip paragraphs. And that's just a way of holding ourselves accountable to teach the whole truth of God's word. A, a caveat I want to make on this, and it's in the point, it's loving truthfulness. Paul himself wrote to these elders in Ephesus in Ephesians 4, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, who is Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When we come and we speak things that are hard, it always needs to be in the context of love and care and relationship. Satan would deceive us into thinking we can be harsh and somehow that's bold. That, hey, if it's true, it's okay to be mean. And those are all lies from Satan. Paul says, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. The goal here is to win your brother or sister back to Christ. Not to own them on Twitter. 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 <laughs> Twitter. Sorry, I I don't do Twitter much. It's just so toxic. (laughs) And if I say own them on Facebook, half of you will think, man, he's old. (laughs) 
speak the truth in love, village. It was Paul's example. It should be our example. Two last things. One out of verse 20, one out of verse 21. The last phrase there is, he didn't shrink from teaching anything hard, and he taught them in public and from house to house. And again, these are verses you could fly over, you could read these and be like, okay, so he taught in public and house to house. But think about what that ministry looks like. Public, remember in, in Ephesus, he ended up renting the hall of Tyrannus and ended up teaching in public. But it also means that he entered people's houses and had dinner with them and taught in homes and did small Bible studies. And, and really, it's a picture of what discipleship looks like, of personal discipleship, right? And so point number seven is personal discipleship. He made that part of his ministry. It wasn't just, oh, I'm up front on a podium, I'm a platform. And this goes back to the transparency. It was, I'm in your homes. We're talking while we're making dinner. We're talking while we're cleaning up from dinner. We're feeding the animals and talking spiritual things. And so Paul was committed to personal discipleship because he was committed to using every opportunity to help someone grow with God. I love the house to house too. We saw that in the early church. We see that in Acts 2. They were breaking bread together. The church was going from house to house. How willing are we to let each other into our lives? How willing are we to let each other into our homes? These are things that help us grow and help us minister. And finally, point number eight, Paul's example was the gospel. He was committed to bring all people to Christ. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he ends his example and his description of his example of ministry saying, I'm committed to the gospel. And the gospel for everyone, Jews, Greeks, everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs a savior. Everyone needs to repent and give their lives to Jesus Christ. And so he says, you saw it. Back to, back to the first verse. You saw it. You know that I've been about the gospel. And I share the gospel to anyone. And the gospel includes repentance. And repentance is a directional word. You've heard me talk about it. It means I'm going this direction. And if I repent, I say this direction isn't right. And I do a U-turn and say, oh, there's Jesus. And repentance always involves that turning. Repentance isn't saying, oh, this direction's wrong. Oh, Yeah, I shouldn't do this. Uh, This is really bad. I really shouldn't go this way. That's not repentance. So confession is not repentance. It's part of it. But repentance means to turn around and go the other direction. And so Paul here says, I have never shrunk from to everyone saying, you've got to turn from sin and go to Christ. Not with a double-minded or a double life. Not holding on to this while trying to somehow cling to this. Holding on to this while sitting in church and saying, look how spiritual I am. Paul says, you've got to turn and leave the ways of the world and follow Christ. And he was about the gospel. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That he is Lord. He is over our lives. Jesus means that God saves. And Christ means he was the Messiah. And so ultimately, Paul has said what it's about. It's about making sure people know who Jesus is 
and give their lives to him. Eight things about Paul's example in these short verses. And I would challenge you to internalize these and pursue these. I mean, just think about how these play out in the home. Moms and dads, if you're not transparent with your kids, you are not earning the respect to lead them well. You need to be transparent, even with your faults. Show them how to confess. Show them how to repent. For leading our homes, we need to leave as servants. If we're always grasping at what my family can do for me, we're missing the whole point of what can I do for them and how can I serve them. Dads, if you're going to leave your, lead your family as well, you need to be the best servant in your home. If you're not, your kids are going to grow up thinking it's all about you instead of it's all about Jesus. And you will lead your home, it just won't be to Jesus. And so we should be looking at this idea of we are servants and how can I show servanthood to my family? Humility, how can I show humility and put others first in the family? And every family member should be learning to practice this. Your kids do not come out and and are in the nursery practicing humility from day one. They don't know what humility is. They don't know what putting others first is. They just know they're hungry and they're going to scream until you take care of their needs. And we have to teach humility. We have to teach putting others first. So these examples of Paul are huge. Care in the home has to happen. Moms and dads, if you are just the disciplinarian and and don't show the relationship with your kids... You are creating legalistic kids that will eventually walk away. That care and that relationship has to be there. It is what often, after many years of youth ministry, the bonds you make of caring and loving your kids are often the very things that get you through the teen years and into adulthood and keep those relationships through adulthood. Endurance. In the home, you're going to go through trials. Let your kids see you hurt and let your kids see you hope in God. Because they're going to grow up and have trials. And if they've never seen how to go through it, they won't know what to do. So be transparent. Let them see a hope in the Lord. Let them see that it doesn't shut you down, but you keep going. Loving truthfulness. Mom and dad, the the other side of caring, we can care so much that we never discipline and we don't care. <laughs> Loving truthfulness, there have to be boundaries. There have to be care. There has to be care. It's okay to make them do their chores. My kids are hating me right now. It's okay to say this is what needs to happen. But it's done in love. Personal discipleship. Moms and dads, you are the primary discipler of your kids. We affirm that as a church. We support that as a church. We try to equip you. Now, we come alongside with Awana and with youth program and training. But mom and dads, you're the one that's going to stand before God. And he's going to ask, how did you disciple your kids? So take that seriously. Take the time to do that, to talk about spiritual things together. And then live the gospel in your home. Eight characteristics from Paul. 
not just for ministry in the church, but ministry anywhere. May we take them as examples of how to live for God and apply them to our lives. This morning, we want to come to the table and, and we want to come to the Lord's Supper. And this reminds us, for me, it reminds me of the humility part of today, that this is grace that is not deserved, that this is Christ's act of saving us that I didn't earn, but that he freely bestows on those who follow him. And as we take the elements, you're going to see the crackers that come around. And the cracker represents the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for him, for, for us rather. That he freely gave his body on the cross to be tortured, to be killed in payment for our sins. And he took our sins on himself. And then the juice that you'll get represents his blood that was spilled and his death. That at that moment of death, he paid the price for our sin completely, fully, freely, and forever for those that come to him. And this is a table, just just making it really clear, this is a table for those that have already made that decision. Because this is a remembrance. This is us saying, I remember what Jesus did and I'm going to follow him and keep following him. And if you haven't done that this morning, number one, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you can hear what Jesus has done for you. But number two, you can give your life to Jesus right now. And you can say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I accept what you've done on the cross for me. And I give my life to you. I'm going to follow you is what that means. I'm going to follow you with my whole heart. And if you do that right now, then please take it with us. If you're still figuring out and have questions about who Jesus is, that's great. Just don't take the elements this morning because they represent that you've already made that commitment. But this is our chance to remind ourselves how Jesus ministered, how Jesus gave his life for us. Let's pray together and thank God for that sacrifice. Lord God, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for willingly going to the cross in humility, Lord, as, as a servant showing us that you came to serve, not to be served. But Lord, help us to see this as your grace for us and then live in light of that grace and copy your example and copy Paul's example, Lord. Thank you for what you've done on the cross. In your name, amen.